Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Alexander Hudson, a writer and commentator who's recently published her first book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. I'm grateful to speak with her about the book, including where civility comes from and how we can rediscover it. Alexandra, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. Let's start with a definitional question, because uh, I suspect many people have an instinctive understanding of civility, but you make the point that civility is distinct from politeness. What's the difference, and why is civility better in your mind? So part of my story, Sean, is that I was raised by the Manners Lady. So Judy the Manners Lady is is my mother, and I was raised in this home that was, you know, it's attentive to social norms, but also my mother is incredibly kind and generous on, and hospitable. But I remember always being skeptical of the social norms that she expected my brothers and I to comply with. I'm constitutionally allergic to authority. I hate being told what to do. I hate arbitrary rules. So I always kind of question these social norms. But she promised me that if I followed them, they would generally serve me well in work, school, and life. And she was right. So I followed these norms, despite always kind of harboring questions and resentment towards them. And uh, she was right until I found myself at the U.S. Department of Education. I was in, in government 2017 to 2018. And I um, saw these two extremes while I was in government. On one hand, there were people with sharp elbows and they were willing to step on anyone to get ahead and gain their objectives. On the other hand, at first, I thought the second contingent were my people. They were polished and suave and poised and polite, but they were the people who would smile at me and flatter at me, flatter me, and then stab me in the back the moment that I no longer served their purposes. And I was puzzled by this, the second contingent, because my mother had said growing up that manners mattered because they were an outward extension of our inward character. And yet here I was surrounded by people who were well-mannered enough and yet ruthless and cruel. So at first I thought that these two modes were complete opposites, you know, opposite poles on, on a spectrum. But then I actually realized that they are two sides of the same coin. Both see others as means to their selfish ends. The, the hostile contingent saw the saw other people as, as um, you know, people who should just be stepped over in order to gain our goals, one's old goals. And the other, the polite contingent saw people to be manipulated in order to achieve one goals. Uh, but neither sufficiently respected the dignity and personhood of, of the other. 
So seeing this mismatch between manners and morals, inner and outer, uh, inner, inner, inner motivations, outer conduct, that helped clarify for me this essential distinction between civility and politeness. So politeness, I, I came to appreciate, is manners, it's etiquette, it's technique, it's external, it's behavioral, superficial. Civility, by contrast, is internal. It's a disposition of the heart that sees others as our moral equals and treats them with the respect that they deserve in light of that, in light of our shared moral status as members of the human community. And essentially, sometimes actually respecting someone, actually loving someone requires being impolite. It requires telling a hard truth, engaging in robust debate, breaking the conventional rules of politeness and etiquette for the sake of friendship, for the sake of actually respecting someone. So the, the so in short, to answer your question, politeness is manners, it's etiquette, external, superficial, civility, a disposition of the heart that actually respects people and sometimes requires breaking rules of politeness, requires being impolite in order to actually uh, respect someone. Building on that answer, Alexandra, make the case for civility why is it a normative good? Why is it something that we ought to aspire to individually and collectively? Civility is both an inherent and an instrumental good. It's an inherent good because treating others, other human beings with respect and uh, that they're accorded by virtue of their hu- human dignity, that is a good thing in and of itself, regardless of any sort of external benefit or gain. But it is also an instrumental good because it can lead to important externalities, such as um, you know promoting equality and justice and freedom for all. I have a whole chapter in my book on protest and mm. civil disobedience that goes through several examples from across history, from Gandhi to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Edward Coles, an unsung hero of a protest and truth telling in American history. But but these people who, through their words or actions that were deeply impolite, like breaking rules of propriety, like a protest isn't polite, but especially for Dr. King, you know, he was, he For everyone who um, wanted to be part of his peaceful, nonviolent resistance during the civil rights movement, they had to undergo what was called purification. And that was a purification of self. They had to not just release any anger they had towards the bigoted and the racist people they were protesting. They had to cultivate love for them and respect for them. That was the purification of the motives, the internal had to be in place before Dr. King would let them engage in protests or sit-ins or any of these, these other forms of, again, not polite behavior, but deeply civil behavior, that sometimes that's the duty of citizenship. And of course, we see how remarkably successful it was. It pricked the conscience of, of, of America where that, that was confronted with the ugliness and the brutality of, of segregation and of racism in this country. And it helped you know promote, we're not perfect in America today by any means, but it you know, thankfully, it's not as bad as it as it as it once was. We're not in Jim Crow um, America anymore. Thankfully, so it's both an instrumental good. It can help us and have important conversations. It can prick the conscience of, of of people and confront them with hypocrisy and ugliness. But it is also outside of any external gains an inherent good to treat others with dignity and respect just because they're people. One thing that I wondered about as I prepared for a conversation is whether we're hardwired to be civil or confrontational. If one goes back to our evolutionary roots, is civility our natural state or is it the exception? We are 
there's a duality to our nature as human beings. We are profoundly social as a species. We thrive in relationship and community and friendship with others. We want, we become fully human only with others. We achieve our potential in relationship. And yet morally and biologically, we are driven to meet our own needs before others. We're defined mm. by self-love as well. And those two aspects of who we are, foundational aspects of who we are, are intention, the social and the selfish. And that is why I'm skeptical of people who claim today that, you know, America or our world is the most uncivil. It's This is not a new problem. It's not a now problem. It's not an America problem. It's not a Donald Trump problem. This is a problem of the human condition. It goes back to the origins of our species. And that that is why it, it, we have to keep that in mind because it gives us humility. Like no, no one, no one public policy, no one politician, no one book for that matter is going <laughs> to eradicate this, uh, this, this civility crisis, you know, like I think it requires us to be, to be humble about it. But, I, but I like to say that history, looking back at our evolutionary roots and, you know, past and, and distant and more, more recent history is both caution and comfort. Mm. On one hand, you know, we're not on the precipice of a civil war. We're not amid civil war right now. We're not in Jim Crow America uh, anymore. We're not, we, we don't have over, you know, we don't have slavery. We don't have, you know, uh, over racism in the ways that we have in the past, thankfully. But it has been really bad before. And that that's that's cautionary to us. It's been bad before. It can easily get bad again. Friendship, community, civilization itself is fragile. It is never a foregone conclusion. Why? Because of this inherent tension in our nature. It is never a foregone conclusion. That's why it, re it requires vigilance of each of us at the individual level through our daily actions to act in ways that affirm the dignity and humanity of others through our, our civility, which in turn gives us all collectively the motivation to do the tough stuff of life together. Life together is hard. It's the best life, but it's not a foregone conclusion. And it's hard. It requires work. It requires effort. The moment you put a friendship, civilization, a marriage, which is at its core friendship on autopilot, that's its demise. You can never take it for granted. It requires the vigilance of, of each of us, of each party to, to sustain it. In a recent episode of Hub Dialogues, one guest noted that people respond more to negative political ads than positive ones. What explains that in your mind? And what might it tell us about the challenges that you and others face in making the case for civility? I think that gets to this duality in our nature. You know, there, there's a duality between our social and our selfish, between love and fear as well. Those are two equally primary motivating factors. Machiavelli and his prince said, you know, it's better to be both feared and loved by as a leader to have your your subjects fear you and love you at the same time <laughs> but sorry i'm laughing because i have michael scott's words in my head where, where <laughs> michael scott says i want my people to fear how much they love me <laughs> sorry you're, you're probably like why is she cackling <laughs> anyway so so but machiavelli says if you have to choose choose fear. Like fear is a powerful motivator, which is why negative ads are incredibly effective. They're reliably effective. Fear of the other, right? Like that's why we see uh, it's, it's useful to our public leaders to instill fear in, in their supporters 
towards an outsider. They're fearful of an outsider. The, the in in the American context, the most coherent times of national unity have been in times of war, profound fear of the other, of the outsider. Of there's an external threat that binds us together, temporarily puts our internal petty squabbles on hold because now we have a bigger other to fight against. Um, so it's an incredibly powerful motivator. I think that the the duty of our leaders today, that unfortunately we don't have a lot of leaders who are models in this way, right? now in our in our world is to not wield that powerful motivator of fear for their own benefit you know like like having an other is, is an easy way to consolidate power and say like look i'm your savior i'm the one that's going to protect you from this fear manufactured or otherwise so that explains i think it's one explanation for why we see negative ads why they are incredibly effective they always will be but i mean any also in the american context that the american founding fathers distinguished between liberty and license. So liberty was a virtuous use of our freedom. License was a vicious use of freedom. And I think that distinction applies to citizens. Like how are we choosing to use our freedom in ways that are positive and pro-social and promote unity and social trust? But that applies to leaders as well. Are our, our, our leaders using their power, uh, their, 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 their rhetorical persuasion, their megaphones, their platforms, is it liberty or is it license? Is it for the good of their subjects? Not subjects, sorry, this is a democracy. Sorry, Freudian slip. Are they using it for the good of their citizens? Or is it for the for their own gain, you know, where, where they are able to do more and say more and get away with more and, and consolidate power um, using the fear of others as a, as a tool to do that? In addition to evolutionary forces, there's also the role of institutional and societal incentives at play. One gets a sense these days that even if civility might be good for the soul, confrontation pays better. Even in the world in which the hub exists, websites that are more combative and confrontational yeah. tend to do better than us. Right. Talk, Alexander, about the incentives that push back against civility. It's so true. Like on one hand, nature doesn't, human nature doesn't change. We're just as we're just as much defined uh, by our social and selfish parts, components today as we were the dawn of our species. In fact, that's why the oldest book in the world is a civility book, which I'm happy to talk about. Or you can buy my book and read about it. <laughs> um, but there are very many important differences in, in our own moment versus past eras. And one of them, as you rightly noted, is our media culture. Like the ubiquity and the ease of, of information and the, the sensory overload at, at, at all times. And you know the way in which one person's anger or misinformation can go viral like that. What's that great Churchill line that the lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on? And that was, you know, we said that what in the 50s, like the 1950s. And that's, that's even more true in the era of Twitter and, and TikTok. So what do we what do we do about that? I thought about that deeply as I wrote this book. How do I embody the ideas that I care about, which are decency and civility and temperance and moderation uh, across difference and in a very in an era defined by extremes, how do I embody that while also being commercially viable and actually selling my book? And it's <laughs> it's a handicap. It is being decent. Yes, in our in our in this incendiary world, in this world we live in that that, that rewards the 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 vitriol and the incendiary. It, it is a handicap. But you know, one thing I talk about in the book is that. Just, just Socrates says, says, said, virtue is its own reward. Vice and viciousness is its own punishment. Like people who do the right thing for its own sake, that's they, they comprise healthy and just souls. And that's its own reward. People who are vicious, 
towards others. Like they, they hurt themselves. And they also, those are the actions of someone who has a sick soul, Socrates says. And those people, they don't deserve our scorn. They deserve our compassion because as they hurt others, they hurt themselves. They deform their own soul. And Dr. King said this as well about segregation. He said in his letter from a Birmingham jail that segregation is mutually disennobling. It hurts both the segregated because it gives them a false sense of inferiority and the segregator giving them a false sense of superiority and it hurts both parties. Same is true for incivility and indecency and cruelty to others. Like we don't realize that often the kindest thing we can do for ourselves is to be kind and good to others, that we never feel good. Like we, you know, we never feel good when we're, when we're cruel to others, but we do, we deform our own soul. We degrade our own humanity. We become less humane, but also less human uh, when, when we do that. So when in doubt, cite Socrates, virtue its own reward, vice its own <laughs> That's a strong reaction. I would just say in parentheses, you know, civility with private jet and extra homes would be kind of nice too, but I, I, no, I, yeah, exactly. I take <laughs> no complaints. <laughs> I want to come back to your experience in the department of education, because I think it's a, an insightful one. One sometimes hears the argument that, well, civility is nice. It's actually confrontation that can contribute to progress. I listened somewhere, for instance, recently that Steve Jobs, number two at Apple, said that Jobs was a son of a bitch, but that if this other individual had led the company rather than him, we may not have gotten the iPhone or the iPad or other technological breakthroughs. You hear this about Elon Musk too, as someone who doesn't seem to value civility or maybe, as you put it, politeness. Now, if one's goal is human progress, can civility actually be overrated? So civility, as I define it, it encompasses confrontation. It encompasses, you know, robust truth-telling and having difficult conversations. Again, even the civil disobedience tradition, like that that taking to the streets, protesting, sit-ins, letter, letter writing campaigns, those are actions that are driven by respect and, and love for the other. So I like to say that civility, it, it, it offers parameters for our conduct. Sometimes it demands conduct. And again, this is what Dr. King and his purification uh, and his nonviolent peaceful resistance um, campaign and movement, it like he in his mind and the mind of his supporters, taking action and protesting was the civil thing to do. It was the it, that was the, the loving thing to do. So sometimes it, and it was the duty of citizenship too. Tiny footnote, just to, it's it's a, it's a fun trivia, but also a mnemonic device to help remember this distinction. The etymology of these two words civility and politeness, it is, is, is supports the distinction I make. So the etymology of politeness is the Latin root polier, which means to smooth or polish. And that's what politeness does. Again, it focuses on the superficial, the external, the behavior. The Latin root of civility is civis, So all things related to the citizen, citizenship, and the city. So civility is the duty of, of the citizen in the city. And, and again, that requires having a debate, especially in a democracy, truth-telling, taking action. And so back to, uh, back to, back to Dr. King, that it, his, his civility in his instance required, con required protest. It was the duty of citizenship to protest because there was unequal access and, and un unequal treatment under the law for, for, for all American, all American citizens in that instance. It, it was, it was, a, it was a system that degraded the dignity of the human personality and that demanded action. And that, that was, at, in fact, a love of 
an act of love for country as well. Like, look, you're, look, America, you're imperfectly living up to the ideals of life, liberty, and pursuit uh, of happiness for all. But it also takes certain, civility also takes certain conduct off the table. So it, sometimes it demands conduct. On the other side of the spectrum, it takes certain conduct off the table. For example, ad hominem attacks, violence, you know, anything that degrades the dignity of the human person. For Dr. King and many other effective change makers and abolitionists, like if there were ever a time that that we could even entertain a conversation about departing from decency and civility, it would be it would be in the fight, you know, against slavery and abolition and Jim Crow. And so there were other many abolitionists who understood that in their pursuit of equality and justice for all, they couldn't undermine their ideas of equality and justice for all by by degrade by by engaging in violence or or dehumanizing conduct towards the slave owners or the or the segregators as as the case may be. And so they they knew that the best way to honor and embody their principles was to stay true to those principles but let those principles guide action that again demanded action but took also some action off the table. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. You and I have traveled in different political circles in Canada and the United States, and one argument that you might hear these days is that the stakes are too high for civility, that if we're fighting over questions of culture, identity, or even life itself, civility has to be subordinated to winning. Maybe I'll just have you elaborate, Alexandria, on why that thinking is wrong. I love the story of Edward Coles to, to illustrate why, you know, even when the stakes are high, civility is still still requires us to be to, to do some action, but it takes some action off the table again. Like if there's ever a time to uh, justify or even interesting the idea of justifying a, a, a departure from decency and civility would be um, in the debate about 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 slavery. So Edward Coles is this unsung hero in human history because he was a, a generation after the founding fathers, but he he was he was in in the same set of social class as as the founding fathers he was a neighbor to thomas jefferson and an aide in james madison's white house and he early in his life came to the conclusion that slavery was a moral evil and that it should be abolished everywhere in the world especially in america and in fact he waited until his father died and then as soon as his father died he inherited all his slaves and immediately manumitted them and ended up moving to illinois and ran for governor on an abolitionist campaign so just you know an incredible person undersung hero in in world history he while he was an aide in james madison's white house so like early 1800s in american history wrote a letter to his neighbor Thomas Jefferson, who's this old kind of senior statesman who had been, you know, architect of liberty, father of the revolution, father of America, very one of the most prominent, powerful people in the country. 
And and again, he's this like young politico who does, has a lot to lose, not a lot to gain, right? But he decides while he's working in the White House to write a letter to Thomas Jefferson calling him right out for owning slaves while being the architect of liberty. He says in this letter to Thomas Jefferson, look, you own slaves and you wrote these words, like just join us, just renounce the past and, and we need your help, Edward Cole says. Like your assistance in the abolitionist cause would be invaluable. And amazingly, Thomas Jefferson responds. He says, Edward, great to hear from you. Thanks for your note. I hear what you're saying. And and you're absolutely right, Jefferson says. It's clear that history is going in the direction of abolishing slavery. Jefferson says, look at the Haitian revolution. The Haitians won their freedom. Like that this is this is where things are going. You're absolutely right. But you don't need me, he says. I'm too old, Jefferson says. It's going to happen anyways, with or without me. I'm too old. Like, you know, I believe in what you're doing. Like, good luck. Goodbye. (laughs) Edward Coles writes back to Jefferson and says, like, just, you know, every excuse Jefferson gave, like, hammers it right back, like, answers it. Like, you know, Jefferson says, I'm too old. Edward Coles says, I mean, look at Benjamin Franklin. He's not exactly a spring chicken and he's on our side. He's helping us. He's helping us too. And he just, just, and, and says, like, look, this, like, live up to your ideals. Do like embody the value. Don't just write down values like such as life, liberty, and equality for all. Embody it. Live live out, live it out in your life. This is one of the only instances that we know of that where Jefferson was, you know, actually confronted with this, with this internal incoherence and hypocrisy. Jefferson never responded to that final letter from Edward Coles, but we have that, we have that correspondence, that, that, that record that is just extraordinary for so many ways. Like it was risky for this young, like Politico to, to take on the, 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 the American statesman. Jefferson could have gone like that and destroyed his, his life and career. He didn't, um, but it was risky to, to, to speak truth to power in that way. But he was so convinced that that was the the right thing to do that he he risked you know his life and career not life his career to uh livelihood maybe to to do it and and there are two reasons i like that story one again it shows how civility requires truth telling and speaking truth to power mm. and secondly it shows it, it kind of gives an answer to those there are many today who feel the need to reconcile or to 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 justify all things American founding era to to justify all things America. And they say, oh, well, you know, those men, they were products of their time. Like we should hold them to another moral standard because they're, you know, that was so long ago. And I love stories like Edward Coles. He was not the only one, by the way, like of this founding era that saw the moral abhorrence of slavery. I love the story of Edward Coles who saw the moral error of slavery and and did something about it like both like in his lifetime he he confronted Thomas Jefferson and then moved to Illinois and and helped end slavery like you know on an abolitionist platform rather and he was really influential as a statesman on Abraham Lincoln so with his life he made a big difference in in this conversation and so i think that he his his life and story is an answer to people that want to excuse the moral failings of people of past eras, because there were people who who saw and did the right thing. You're an American Canadian dual citizen currently living in the United States. I'm a Canadian citizen similarly living here in America. Do you think there's such a thing as a collective civility? That is to say, are there societies that tend to be more or less civil 
And if so, what might one attribute that to you? Is it religion, culture, demographics? What would explain it? The test of true civilization, as I define it. So a civilization is, 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 is comprised, as Samuel Johnson, the author of the first English dictionary said, of people who care about the needs of the vulnerable, of the oppressed in society. That was that was that was Samuel Johnson's line that the test of a true civilization is how well they care for the vulnerable and weak in, in a society. Uh, so I like this idea of a civilization at a macro level reflecting the character uh, of people at the micro level. And I have this this metaphor, this defining metaphor in my book of the garden of civilization. So the Garden of Civilization is this flourishing ecosystem of birds and bees and, and, and diverse plants. And it's all just, you know, working together and it's beautiful and abundant flourishing. And this Garden of Civilization is made up of individual plots of soil, individual plots of land. That's every single citizen in a civilization. All they have is an individual plot of land. And that's all we can control. And but we can control what we plant. Are we going to, in our little plot of land, are we going to plant seeds of kindness and of decency and of charity and hospitality and compassion and empathy? These seeds of that, 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 that grow crops that nourish with their roots, the entire, you know, soil, that, that plot of land, but like nourish other plots of land as well that create abundant fruits and vegetables and that that create beautiful flowers or will we sow seeds of malice of accusation of judgment of cruelty that become invasive species that zap nutrients from the soil that become thistle weeds that are invasive and that 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 literally corrode and encroach upon the soil of those around us like it, it I like this metaphor because it gets to this deeply interconnected nature uh, of, of what we as citizens of, as human beings are and, and of what a civilization is that, you know, all we can control is our one plot of land, but what we choose to do with our lives, with our plots of land that has serious consequences across, across the, the garden of civilization and what we choose to do either supports and contributes to this flourishing and diverse and abundant, beautiful ecosystem of civilization, or it detracts from it. Our decisions have big consequences, how we choose to act in every interaction with our fellow citizens, our fellow human beings every day has big consequences for whether we become actually a, a, a civilization or devolve into a, you know, a barbarism and, and, and barbarism is cruelty and malice, not just to the other, but to, to our own as well. Historically, Alexandra, how individuals have thought about those two paths for themselves has been informed at least in part, by religious views or religious foundations. Right. Is there a risk that the secular world doesn't provide that same guide towards civility? So there's no question that the Judeo-Christian worldview transformed life as we know it. There's a great secular classicist. His name is Tom Holland. He's based in the UK. And his book called Dominion talks about how Christianity in particular transformed the morals of the world as we know. We we love, you know, we love human rights today. We take them for granted. Human dignity, take it for granted. It's in constitutions around the world, those ideas, human rights and human dignity. Those have explicit roots in the, the Christian tradition, the tr tradition that uh, the Judeo-Christian, where, where all persons have 
value, have worth that has not been an assumption that other 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 cultures have assumed. <laughs> and so anyway, all that to say, yes, to some extent, this this universality of what we are owed and owe to others that has roots in an explicitly Judeo-Christian uh, lineage. What what I think really is interesting, though, is that even in, in the pre, pre-Christian world and in other cultural and ethic traditions, uh, and I get to this in my chapter on hospitality, that there is this beautiful tradition and ethic of what we Oh, the stranger in need, just because, just because, you know, just because they're a human being that might otherwise die if we don't help them. And I tell the story of Eumaeus from Homer's Odyssey. And of course, this is a pre, pre-Christian epic from 800 BC in ancient Greece, where Odysseus has been tossed about by fate for a decade and he comes home to his, his, his native Ithaca and he can't wait to finally be home to his wife, to his family that he hasn't seen for so long after leaving the Trojan War. And the first person he sees is his prior servant, Eumaeus. And Eumaeus is a very under, underprivileged person. He's someone who doesn't have a lot in the way of material you know, wealth in life. And yet Eumaeus sees someone in Odysseus who's dressed as a beggar. He sees someone who he deems is just you know, less fortunate than he is. And he invites him in, offers him a meal, offers him a bath, offers him new clothes. And and treats him incredibly well, and, and Odysseus is overjoyed by uh, this act of kindness and hospitality and generosity by his former servant, who didn't even know he was doing it to his former master. And there's this beautiful reunion, and it's just you know, a beautiful story. But this trope, there's there's this motif of the strangers in disguise uh, across history and across culture. It's in the Hebrew Bible. It's in A Thousand and One Nights, this collection of um, Middle Eastern tales. It's a, it's in the Odyssey, and we see it across place across time and place that that and that 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 has the moral that you 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 treat someone well because you never know who they are and just because they're people like you could be you know god in disguise that's that's something we see a lot in the ancient world like a god and a deity in disguise or angels in disguise and i think that's really beautiful that yes you know we there are certain things that we explicitly attribute to the judeo-christian tradition and ex- explicitly the Christian tradition, human dignity, charity, like those were foreign concepts to universal human dignity, foreign to the pagan world, charity, foreign to the pagan world. You barely owe charity to your fellow citizen, to your wife, let alone (laughs) a stranger, like a barbarian, right? But it is nice. I, I really enjoyed kind of surveying ancient literature, these civility handbooks across history and culture, ethical handbooks, like these stories and these handbooks are important to look at because they encode they have encoded within them ethics and and worldviews that we can derive from and that that was their purpose then they were they were meant to instill a worldview um in in the people who heard these stories and read these handbooks and even in these handbooks we see a sort of like lay lay ethic you know of of treating the other with decency and respect and kindness and hospitality sometimes even when it's risky to do so taking someone into your home a complete stranger that that scandalizes us today we would never do that we'd refer them to the first social service right but like is it true to say that we're less hospitable than past eras i don't necessarily know that's true but anyway all that to say yes to some extent to answer your question yes and and no a penultimate question do you have reason to think that there is a public appetite for a civility renaissance? How do we overcome the, the loudest voices in our societies that can distort the public conversation? 
I do have good reason to believe that there's appetite for a a civic renaissance because I'm starting it and I've witnessed it. <laughs> so when I left uh, when I left government in 2018, I moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, with my husband, who is from Indiana originally. And one of my first friends here, her name was Joanna Tapp. She came up to me one day and said, "Hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us sometime?" And I had never heard the word porch used as a verb before, but I was curious and we didn't know many people here. So we went to her home and we sat that afternoon with Joanna on her great big front porch, her great big front veranda with people we didn't know that she had intentionally curated from across race, across political divide, across geography. You know, on one hand, human nature doesn't change, but there's a lot, as we've noted in our conversation so far, that is different. And one of those things is the way in which it's so easy to just go from work to our car to home and back again. Like that's our cycle. And we don't really have to be in proximity with people that we don't like or don't know very often if we don't want to. So I realize that Joanna is staging this quiet, revolution from her front porch, this quiet rebellion against our atomized and divided status quo um, by by l- using her front porch as this incubator of social trust, of friendship, and of social healing. And I, I, I realized um, that there are people like Joanna across the country, tens of thousands of them, who recognize that they cannot you know, change who's in Langevin building or in Ottawa, you know, or they, they can't, they, they can't control the scandal of the day or, or what, 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 what's going on in our nation's capital, but they can change how they, how they interact every day. And that they've chosen to double down on their sphere of influence, reclaiming their sphere of influence and making their, their families stronger, their communities better and more beautiful. And that, is changing the world. I call it the porching revolution, even though people who are part of this are doing this, even if they don't have a front porch. It's just, it's not about whether you have a front, it's about that attitude of wanting to make the outsider an insider, the stranger, the friend. It can be a front, it can be a front lawn. It can be a coffee shop. I've met people who hold court every day from their coffee shop, right? They don't have, they don't invite people to their home, but that's like their, their quasi-civic, uh, their quasi-private public sphere. And, and so it's not about what you have. It's, it's about pe- having that orientation to want to, to want to, to use your life as a tool of, of healing, of reconciliation, of unity. And, and that porching revolution is and will change our world. On a question for those listeners who are inspired by your message, besides porching, what can they do to advance the value of civility? Yeah, so we we can we can again with or without a porch reclaim civility, decency in our own lives, making our 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 family stronger. We can model it. Like, you know, for those of us who are parents, we are our children's first and best teacher, most important teacher, and how we live our lives is in a sense like part of that teacher modeling that for our our, our children uh, or for the for the youths in our lives uh that that's essential thinking to ourselves when we're interacting with others am i being polite here am i being self-serving am i am i being content with the superficial or what would the actually civil thing to do be, be to do here and i'll tell you a story that is really helpful for me to clarify you know the distinction between civility and politeness I love the story of Queen Victoria when she had the Queen of, of um, Persia to her home for a state dinner. And again, Victorian England is called Victorian England because of these like, you know, norms of propriety, very elaborate, ornate, arcane rules of etiquette and propriety. 
And uh, the queen of Persia sits down and she does the unthinkable. She takes the bowl in front of her meant to wash your hands and she drinks it, tips it to her lips and drinks it. (laughs) And the room like was still, they couldn't believe that this had happened. And everyone watched to see what queen Victoria would do. And everyone was surprised. She did the exact same thing. She tipped the bowl to her lips and did exactly what her guest had done. She broke the rules of propriety in Victorian England. Why? To make her guest feel comfortable, at ease, and for the sake of friendship, for the sake of community. And so that is what I hope this distinction between civility and politeness can help cultivate in us the wisdom to know when should we break the rules of propriety for the sake of friendship, for the sake of authentic authentic community and relationship that can actually strengthen. Like conflict can strengthen relationship. That, That sounds really counterintuitive today doesn't matter where you are. Conflict's hard, you know, but it's about, it's not about avoiding conflict. It's about doing conflict well, keeping the respect for the other front of mind as we work through a really urgent, pressing, uncomfortable topic uh, together. But there is hope to do that. Again, if we, if we choose to focus on civility, actually respecting others and not being content with, with politeness, which is just pretends often to respect others. That's a brilliant place to end our conversation. The book is The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. Alexandra Hudson, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.